Captain Michelle Fitzsimmons is an 18-year veteran of the New York City Fire Department. She currently is the department's highest-ranking senior woman in fire operations as the company commander of Ladder 12 in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. From 2002 through 2004, she was the president of Fireflag, the FDNY's gay and lesbian organization. In 2007, she co-founded Phoenix Fire Camp, a week-long sleepaway camp that introduces teenage girls to the fire service. She continued as a camp instructor for seven years at the annual program. Then, from 2013 to 2015, she was an instructor at FDNY's Probationary Firefighter School. She is a graduate of the FDNY Officers Management Institute, a program offered by Columbia Business School Executive Education. She has been a guest lecturer at Fire Service Women of Ontario, University of Pennsylvania's Wharton Business School, and Graduate School of Education. She has presented on holding a position of leadership in a male-dominated field, as well as decision-making, while working with mission-critical teams. Prior to joining the FDNY, Michelle worked at GMHC from 1993 to 2001. GMHC is the world's first and leading provider of HIV AIDS prevention, care, and advocacy. Her last three years there were spent as a coordinator of the Lesbian AIDS Project. Michelle, I'm so excited to speak with you today. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) I actually want to dive right in because there's a lot of things I want to cover today. Okay. And I'm going to start with you come from a long line of firefighters, as I understand. That include both your grandfather and great-grandfather. Yes, I do. What was it that influenced you to join the FDNY? Despite the fact that when I was born, my grandfather was already retired, there was still this family legacy of having been fire department that everyone really um, kind of was proud of. And my father had tried to get into the department, but he had uh, perforated eardrums and wasn't able to get in. Uh, He got knocked out in his medical. I was 13 years old when women first came into the fire department. And I remember sitting at my grandfather's knee. I just happened to be at my aunt's house at the time. It's one of these things I have kind of a clear memory of and being like, oh, I want to be a firefighter. And my grandfather was like, women shouldn't be firefighters. And uh, so I really, like, that was kind of like, okay. And I remember as a child having a really big fear of having the house go on fire. Like It was like one of these things I had as a, uh, one of my little fears as a kid. And I decided to kind of go and do something else. Like I got a, started thinking I was going to do physical therapy, ended up getting a degree in environmental science. Came out as a lesbian when I was going into college and uh, ended up, like, when I went away to school, like, my first two years I was at Nassau Community, I went away to school at SUNY Purchase and really found, like, this community of people really was driven by activism and it made me get really passionate about working with people with HIV and AIDS and drove me into doing that as, like, you know, I think I want to do this had seen someone lecture about the uh, Lesbian Age Project. I was like, I want to run that program someday. And shockingly, I actually did. And uh, then I did that, and I was completely burnt out after working with people with HIV and AIDS for 10 years and looking for something. I wanted to do something physical. I um, went to a fundraiser for Christine Quinn, who was Mm -hmm. running for city council. It was her first time running for city council at the time. I happened to sit down at a table with Brenda Berkman, and was just kind of chatting and found out who she was. And she was like, you know, the fire department's going to be open, offering a test in the next year or two. And I was like, hmm. And that kind of was the impetus to be like, you know what? I'm going to do this this time. And I jumped in, started training, and was able to succeed. I was, you know, worked very hard and got into the department. And then, uh, went on to convince my sister that she should do the same thing. And she was a, uh, she was like, nah, I don't want to do that. I was like, I really think you should. She's like, nah, I really don't. And she was floundering, like kind of looking for what it was she wanted to do in life. And I was like, no, I really think you need to do this. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's like, you don't understand. I don't want to run into burning buildings. I said, you'll get over that. Don't worry about it. And she went into the academy and, you know, and she was like, oh, I kind of like this. And Went to, it's like, I can't wait to go to my first fire. 
And then when she once she went to her first fire, she's like, "That was great," and you know, so it, you know, it worked out well for her, and <laughs> you know, so now I have my sister in the department, which is great. It's nice having her there, and we actually got to work together this past summer. Awesome. Yep, she drove me. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I have three sisters, so I really appreciate yeah. that. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. What did your grandfather say when you finally made it onto the job? I guess it's just not the brotherhood anymore. Pretty much his uh, his attitude was like, oh, I guess it's not just the brotherhood, and so and he was really proud. Uh, fortunately, he lived long enough to go to my family day, and uh, he died the month I got off probation. Wow. Yeah. So um, that was uh, I was fortunate that he got to see that, and he was really proud. How did you prepare for the fire department? There are so many pieces that have to come together, and physical is just one of them. How how did you prepare? For it, um, physically, I had been I had been active playing sports and stuff my whole life. And physically, there was a training program that the United Women Firefighters had put together. They had gotten a grant and they had run it at uh, John Jay College. And I went to that. I participated with that. Um, I had been I had become a gym rat a few years before that. That helped me with the tasks of taking the test for the written exam. Everyone's like, oh, it's just a, you know, it's nothing. So I. The fire department offered classes. I went to every single class. I made sure I made it to every class, whether I thought I needed it. Even when I got it, I was like, it's kind of silly. I was like, I'm going to practice. I'm going to go to every one of these classes. I'm going to practice and make sure that when I go and take the test, I get 100. And I did. So that was my, uh, you know, really jumping in, being said that this was going to be my only chance to take the test. Mm -hmm. I was a month and a half away from being too old. When I did finally did uh, sign up for the test, I would ask you like what you did to mentally prepare. Mentally, I I have a a thing I want to share, and I don't know if you remember this. You and I first met back in 2016, and we were at a conference, mm -hmm. and I was preparing for a 40 mile race. So, and I think I had mentioned it to a few people around me that I had a long, you know, couple long training runs coming up. And I might have said you were crazy. You definitely said I was crazy. <laughs> But I remember at one point we were getting lunch, I think it was, and we were standing next to each other. And I took the opportunity to kind of whisper to you and say, I can't believe you do what you do. It's so impressive. I could never do it. And I'll never be able to accurately reenact what your response was to me because it was so confident and concise. And you said, if you wanted to, you could do it. Yes, you could. And in that moment, I realized you're, she's right. I'm determined. I'm disciplined. And if you put your mind to something, you can achieve it. And and that spoke a lot to me about you. Um, I've had a lot of people say, oh, I can't believe you do what you do. I, and I really do believe anyone can do it. I really think if you put your mind to it, and I, there are going to be certain people who are too, like, physically their frame is very, very small. But I really think if you put your mind to it and you really want it, and I wanted this more than anything in the world. I really did. I was so set that this is where I was going to go. I would have done anything to get on the job. And I just wouldn't let myself talk myself out of it. You know. And mm -hmm. I, one of the other things that I was doing was telling people. I think that's one of the biggest things that can make you hold yourself accountable is by telling people what it is you're going to do. Mm -hmm. If you tell someone, you know, well, I'm thinking about you know, like you telling people, I'm going to run 40 miles. Well, you put it out there. Now you got to do it. <laughs> right. I'm the creator of my own destiny. <laughs> and, you know, you mentioned your sister. What, what's the age difference, if you don't mind me asking? Eight years. Eight years. Yeah. So she's 42. I'm 50. Wow. And so it was nice, I'm sure, that she had you to look up to and then give advice and things like that as she came on. Uh, yeah. You know, she doesn't take all of it. I've tried to convince her to take a lieutenant's test and she won't. But, mm -hmm. you know, she's like, I don't want to be a boss. I'm like, all right. You didn't want to be a firefighter. <laughs> so in the intro, I gave a brief description about the work you did prior to joining the FDNY. And I do want to talk more about that later in the mm -hmm. episode. And you mentioned a couple of, of other things that I didn't realize you had as part of your background. If you hadn't been part of the FDNY, what do you think you would have ended up doing? I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, something physical. Maybe trying to get into an electrician's union, something along those lines, and then do something very voluntary with like, I don't know, saving animals, you know, mm -hmm. 
I don't know. Uh, it's it's so hard to look now back and be like, what would I have done if I didn't get in? Because it wasn't an option when I was going to get in. Mm-hmm. I was like, I wasn't going to take the option of not getting in. Mm-hmm. So I think that's uh, that's why I can't look back and be like, what else? What else did I have on my queue of what do I want to do? Because mm-hmm. I didn't. That mm-hmm. was, this was it. So then, who were the firefighters or officers? You looked up to in your early years as an FDNY firefighter? Uh, First and foremost, my really good friend, Anna Skrimahorn Collins, who's a lieutenant in 93. Like she sets this bar so high. And I actually got to to see her this morning. We were doing a watch line together down in (laughs) Chinatown. And uh, I haven't seen her in a while. I ended up, uh, when I did get promoted, kind of followed her up to the 7th Division and then got assigned just completely by happenstance to the next firehouse down from her. She helped me when I was training. She gave me the confidence of, you're going to do, you know, you can do this. When I first started, like I kind of thought I was confident, but having someone like her telling me I could made such a difference. And she, she's a, like, we are very different in the way we move through the world. Although I think we may come across the same because having done the camp together, mm-hmm. it was like, she was the one who was like, you know, the notes and, you know, and everything in order and charts and this and that. And I was the one who walked in and be like, all right, so uh, I think we're going to just do this. And, you know, we're going to wing it and make it happen. There's balance there. Yeah, exactly. There's the balance. You know, you, someone, you need the person who's going to talk the talk and kind of keep it going. And she's the one who was just going to kind of push it from underneath and keep it going. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Rocky Jones. Definitely. I can't not mention her. She's so well respected on the job. And she was always so like down to earth when I would talk her, talk to her and ask her questions. And she's always been available. I'd be like, oh, I think I'm going to be calling you. I've got to ask you some questions. And she'd be like, whenever. You know, so she's really great. Eileen Grieg and her aide is just, you know, when she was right at the end of her career, they worked together. And uh, the first time I saw a woman at a fire was the two of them. Mm-hmm. Rocky was the chief. Eileen was, the, uh, was her aide. And they were like in a, a roof sector of uh, some multiple alarm where the roof has fallen in and stuff like that. And uh, so those like those are the three women who I really have looked up to in terms of – and Lois Mungay, I have to mention her too. Um, she was also kind of like the – you know, Eileen and Lois kind of remained firefighters and really like people respected them a lot. Mm-hmm. And then once I get out of the women firefighters who I've looked up to, someone who set – a bar for me in terms of how I wanted to be as an officer was uh, Lieutenant Rick Bruno, who was uh, one of my officers in 289. You know, his whole thing was, there are no problems, only solutions. And like, you could never go into him and like, have him be like, you know, flip. He was always so even keel, no matter what we'd go to, everything would be like, whenever you're ready, you could start water. You know, there was never, and, and, you know, it was a line I would use it when I was an engine boss. That was the line I would always use. I'd be like, Whenever you're ready, you can start water. Kind of like he'd bring it down, like without ever having gone through the whole of like, how do you bring people back to mm-hmm. center and from going off the other end? He was doing it, mm-hmm. you know. So him and then Daniel Mundy was the captain of 138 when I went across the floor from 289. And there was a guy who set the example of living a life of integrity inside and outside of the department. Like what he does out in his community, you know, he's very active in his community. 289 and 138 had gone to a really bad fire in Jackson Heights back in probably 2004, 2005. Mm-hmm. And there were three little girls that were badly burned. Their parents both died. Mm-hmm. And he really took those kids, like he treated those kids as if they were his own. Like he would do stuff with them all the time and stuff. And that really kind of made me like, get that sense of we are not just going to fires and having a good time in the firehouse. We're serving the community and we're giving back. And he gave back in a way that has just been really kind of blown me away mm-hmm. when I saw that. And that he always stayed in my mind of how I wanted to move through the community. And I feel like I do that. Those are kind of the, I would say, some of the key people that I have dealt with. And those are some amazing leadership tenants to carry with you. Mm-hmm. Are there any other lasting lessons learned that they shared that you go to? Like Anna and I have a relationship where we can talk about what it's like being in the department. And like our conversations just kind of ramble through 
different personalities we run into, how do you deal with them, and maintaining your professionalism, being the only woman in a situation, mm-hmm. and you know the situations you might run into where you're like, mm, is this guy being sexist or is he just an asshole? You know, that's always my thing. I'm like, you know, sometimes I'm like, is it because I'm a woman? And I'm like, I'm not so sure. I think it's more he's... Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so... We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. <laughs> Put a pause on that for now. Actually, um, I, I do want to really pause for a moment and talk about the early stages of your career with the FDNY. Mm-hmm. You graduated from probationary firefighter school nine weeks. Uh, we actually hadn't graduated yet. We went out to the field. The department was doing a uh, seven weeks in an engine, seven weeks in a truck during the academy. Okay. So you hadn't graduated. It was kind of like you did eight weeks in the academy, seven weeks, you know, 14 weeks out in the field, go back to the academy, get evaluated, and then graduate. So what was your graduation date from the academy? When did we end up graduating? Mm -hmm. November 1st, 2001. Okay. Is when we actually had our graduation ceremony. We walked out of the academy for the last time the Friday before the 4th of July weekend. Of 2001. So then some of your classmates from the academy were killed on 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, what six. Did, six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and two guys from my squad. What was that event like for you? And if you don't want to dive into it. Um, I was off duty that day. I was working at Coney Island at the time and had gotten into, uh, I think I was in the city with my company. We had... Like I had driven in. As soon as I saw the second plane hit, I was like, I better head into work or something because I have to do something. We commandeered a bus from Coney Island, and we were in Manhattan probably around 11 o'clock mm-hmm. that morning. And it was, you know, it was crazy. It really was. But there's nothing that makes me say, oh, I wish I hadn't been there that day. I, I'm so glad that I was fortunate enough to try and do some sort of service that day. It was like walking into a post-apocalyptic world with a snowstorm because it was so quiet. Like there was this strange hush in the air at the time when we got down there. I remember when we left the academy that time, Joe Higgins was uh, one of was our DI. He was our head DI when we were there. He was from 111 Truck. He told us, he was like, you know, look around because, you know, you guys are going out in the field and some of you may not be here when you get back. And you're kind of like, you know, you're walking out of the academy. Yeah, yeah whatever. And it damn, you know, it ended up being that six of us didn't come back. And it really stays with me. I remember those guys, especially uh, Mike Dioria was right next to me in my squad. We did everything together when we went through the academy. And losing someone like that, it was just, uh, it was a very rude awakening to what the risks are on this job. But I never for one second thought about changing it. I never thought, I don't think this is for me. I knew that this was definitely what I wanted to be doing. What did you learn about the FDNY? In the time following that, I found out that is not bullshit when they say it's a family. It really is. It's, you know, the closest people you're going to be to outside of your immediate family and very closest of close friends. I learned that I really like to drink a lot (laughs) and that that was a really... Bad way to deal with being stressed and sad, and uh, it took me a while. Eventually, I did. I had to stop completely because uh, developed a bit of a drinking problem after that. Because everything, so many things revolved around like that mourning culture, you know, mourning the loss of what you know what we had lost, and uh, the easiest way to numb that was to drink. Mm-hmm. You know, so for the you know there was that rude awakening for me, but I saw how we come together, we support each other. We look out for each other. We take care of each other's families. And, you know, it made me strive that these six guys that I had gone to the academy with didn't get a chance to get out in the field. And I'm going to make sure that I do my damn best every day when I show up because they never got that opportunity beyond those, uh, those nine weeks that they were in the field. I'm absolutely sure they would be proud. And on, on that, Fast forwarding on the timeline, you served as the captain of Engine 3 mm-hmm. and then transferred across the floor to Ladder 12. Yeah. What do you enjoy most about being a company commander? It's that sense of ownership of the company and basically feeling like I'm the rudder. You know, 
I don't make it move. I just kind of tr- try and keep it on course. You know, the guys are the ones who drive the company. They really are. They show up with their best selves. And my job, I feel like, is to make them be their best selves. You know, I try to look at them and find the strengths in the people and kind of pull on that mm-hmm. and see their weaknesses too and identify, you know, what are those weaknesses that they have and see ways to help them deal with that. You know, a younger firefighter the other day is like kind of going into that like mental fry, like, mm, you know, the sparks are going and completely not for something simple, like what floor to go to when respond. And I was like, stop, take a breath, reset, and let's start over again. So as a company commander, it's been really great to feel like I'm trying to push the company higher to make them better. I hope that when I get promoted and leave Ladder 12, it's a better company than it was when I got there. I try to bring in officers who do hands-on training. Fortunately, I've had the opportunity to bring in, you know, not that the people that were there before, but we're not doing the same thing. But I have had the opportunity to bring officers in, uh, lieutenants under me. And uh, it's been great to be able to say, these guys drill. These guys do what I want them to do. These guys have really high expectations of the people we're bringing in. And, you know, if we can set the bar high, they're going to jump over. They're going to get over it. Mm. They really are. It's just a matter of getting them there. And I feel like I've got a good team to do that. And being the company commander, I was able to kind of drive that. Mm. On the flip side, what are some of the challenges you navigate as a company commander? Uh, dealing with the personalities. Yeah. Um, taking care of my members while taking care of the mission has been a challenge. Because sometimes, you know, taking care of my members is pushing my members, not coddling them, mm-hmm. right? How I take care of them is make sure they're showing up with their best selves. And sometimes you run into issues. Like, you know, guys have problems at home. Guys have, guys come in, you know, from, with different expectations of, you know, what's expected of them. And having to kind of reset their course. So sometimes just dealing with the personalities is challenging. And I can say as a company commander, I never brought this job home like I bring it home now. I think about my company all the time. Before I make any changes, I'm kind of plotting it out in my head to think about what it is I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. You know, I, I move people around on the chart and I spent like three days at home just thinking about it, trying to figure out like, who am I going to put where? And, you know, I don't want to stack it too high, you know, just trying to balance everything out. But I've never thought, like, I never sat at home and thought about this kind of stuff before. But as a company commander, I felt like I I would be doing a disservice if I wasn't that committed to it. Mm -hmm. I mentioned in the intro that you are presently the highest ranking senior female in FDNY fire operations. What advice would you offer the next generation of leaders? Women or just leaders? I want to break it up into two categories. Okay. Are we going to start with just the general? I want to start with the general. Um, stand in your integrity, right? I think that's one of the biggest things. If you say you're going to do it, do it. And, you know, that's my whole thing. of Like putting it out there, saying it out loud is the best way to hold yourself accountable. By telling people what it is you're going to do, you're holding yourself accountable. To do that and have confidence in yourself, be willing to make mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're not trying hard enough. You know, you're not pushing yourself to the boundaries enough. Try and make sure they're not really bad mistakes, though. (laughs) Make sure they're not dangerous mistakes. And have confidence in your abilities. I've watched new lieutenants come out and be like, oh, you know, I'm not really sure I want to tell the guys that. And I'm like, no. Like, be willing to hold that space and be the leader Mm -hmm. when you're there. It's an important thing. The guys, they want someone who's a strong leader. They Mm -hmm. want someone who's going to lead them. Mm -hmm. That's what your role is. You know, they don't want you to do it for them. They want you to just tell you, you know, give them the direction that they need to go. And I think that's that's an important thing there. And also when you make mistakes, don't beat yourself up too much. That's hard. That's easier said than done. Oh, I'm I'm the best at it. I will think about the smallest (laughs) mistake I make at a job for weeks afterwards and and being, you know, and I'll just be in my head about it. And and I have to be like, you know, use a feather. Not a stick, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that is and, good advice. You know, and be willing to ask questions. 
Like if you don't understand or if you're not sure what direction you should go, be willing to ask questions and find mentors. Get someone you want to emulate. You know, what are the qualities of those officers that you had before that you um, admire? Try to emulate that and then get mentors. Ask, you know, don't be afraid to ask someone, is it okay if I call you to ask you some questions about how you do this? Mm -hmm. I think that's an important part of it. And for women assuming leadership roles, what advice would you give them? Women, I think, tend to beat themselves up more than men do. You know, that's from my woman brain. That's what I'm thinking. You know, some people are going to listen to this and be like, that's bullshit. (laughs) Um, But I do think women are harder on themselves, especially in the department. You are one of 1% of the job now. We finally made it. You know, when I came on, there were 33 women and there were 33 women on this job for a very long time. Like we'd have, you know, get a couple more and a couple would retire. We'd get a couple more, a couple more would would retire. And um, that was, we were stuck at that number for a long time. So we've moved through the department, like the women, with knowing the eyes are on you. You can mess up and everyone's going to know it. The probie, who's a guy, might mess up and they're going to, yeah, whatever. There's always going to be, you know, there's always going to be someone in the crowd questioning whether it's because you're a woman. Mm -hmm. And... We internalize that a lot, and I think we need to take it easy on ourselves with that and be strong, be prepared, be willing to put the time in that you are so that you really are prepared so you know that you've done your best when it comes down to it. You know, if you make a mistake, well, you know, well, everyone makes mistakes. Mm -hmm. And then there's always that, you know what, sometimes it's not because you're a woman, sometimes it's because that guy's an asshole. You know, because that was, I remember when I first had that revelation when I was a bouncing lieutenant and I had this chauffeur and I was just like, huh, is it, is it me? Is it? And then I was like, you know what? No, I think, I think this guy's an asshole. Mm-hmm. I, I really think he is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was talking to guys afterwards. They're like, oh yeah, no, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, and I think when I finally had that realization of not everything is because you're a woman. Mm-hmm. I, it just, like, I was just kind of like, whatever, you know. But I think I've also done a lot of work on myself. So I know that what I'm showing up with is a pretty good product. And I try to push myself to kind of keep doing that mm-hmm. with, you know, reading and podcasts and books on tape, things like that. I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but one of the mantras that I kind of live by is I always do the best with what I know at the time. And what you're saying, I know that I fuel myself to the point where when I show up, I am giving my best. I'm not half-assing anything. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't meet my expectations or I fail, it's a lesson learned. I will apply it next time, and that will be the best that I know at that time. So Mm -hmm. that's, I think, very powerful. You don't know what you don't know. I have to ask, though, on the flip side, Mm -hmm. do you ever encounter women who have a negative reaction to women in the fire service? There's this whole thing like the queen bee idea of uh, there can be only one, you know, like some women who really might put down other women. I have not really run into that. I haven't had anyone who I felt like was like putting me down because I was a woman on the job. I've, I can't say that all the women on the job get along. That, uh, but you that's know, just people. That's just people. You know, um, I think there's a couple different ways to approach being a woman on the job and moving through this job. Not that any one way is right or one way is wrong. But I think bad mathing another woman on this job to people is pretty, that's a, it's a tough thing to do or it's a really bad thing to do, mm-hmm. you know, but it's going to happen. You know, there's going to be times when someone's going to do something and you're going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe she did that. And you're going to say it in mixed company and you're going to be like, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that, mm-hmm. you know, but some people just sometimes are going to have a bad day. Mm-hmm. But I have not like I don't think I've experienced it where I've been judged as like yeah you're not good, you know you're not good enough and I try not to you know I've seen people who've had who've struggled and had challenges but it hasn't been in my company where I really know exactly what happened so I really can't say anything in terms of that then so you're going to be promoted to battalion chief in the FDNY and will serve as the first female battalion chief in more than a decade congratulations. You were just talking a lot about preparation. How are you preparing for this role? 
I've been talking to a lot of chiefs. Um, I can say Chief McCarthy, who's our battalion commander, and uh, Chief Lacelli, who is uh, one of our other chiefs. And, and not that the other chiefs aren't doing it, but those two specifically, I've talked to a lot about being a battalion chief and like, what are the things to think about? And, you know, what are, you know, what were things that help you? And they've been so generous with, this is something you might want to think about when you're a battalion chief. And when you're on the fire ground, these are the kind of things you should think about. Or, you know, come over here and take a look at this, you know, or come to this, you know, I want you to come to this meeting with me so you can sit in on this and see how this goes. Like, it's been great for me to have within the 7th Battalion, having them really engage me in, you're going to be a chief, these are the things you need to know. So that's been great. One of my things that I do is visualization and kind of going through scenarios in my head. All right, if I went to one of these things, what would I do? How would I do this? And like doing the whole like closing my eyes, doing it, going through it first person experience of what would it be like? How would I respond? How do I keep cool? How do I maintain? How am I going to, how am I going to write things out so that I can keep track of it? Like stupid things like that. Not stupid. Not stupid. We know. We, we know. We know. It's good science. Well, this, is, this is the perfect segue to my next question, which is: You were one of the performance leaders who attended the FDNY's Mental Performance Initiative course in February 2016. How has MPI impacted the way you lead and prepare? yourself and your firefighters to operate at fires and emergencies. I did a lot of that like tensing and releasing, tensing and releasing when responding to boxes. And I realized like while I was there, I realized, wow, I really have a lot of routines that I do. Like I, I do things exactly the same way all the time when responding, like when we're in the rig of how I put my stuff on, you know, how I strap in, da, da, da. I go through that whole process and it's kind of the same every single time. And then like I do a lot of visualizing based on real fires that I hear about, not necessarily things I've gone to. And when I try and do visualizing something where I did something I wouldn't do again, try to visualize it doing it the right way or the way I would prefer to have done it. Mm -hmm. So the visualization is a big thing that works for me. I talk to my guys about doing that. I stop before I ever make transmissions to make sure that if I make a transmission, I am not going to sound like I'm in a panic. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be calm with the idea of being, I don't want to push anyone closer to the edge of being nervous. Mm -hmm. I want to try and keep every, you know, I want it to be calm, calm approach to it. And then for my firefighters, my thing has been hands-on drills, real life, like putting the mask on where I used to be like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to put the guys in the mask because you know, I'm going to get hot da, 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 if we get a run. I don't care anymore. Like, I'm like, that is how we need to drill. It needs to be realistic. I do a lot of the talking drills with the guys, and my lieutenants do a lot of the hands-on drills. Like, we'll be like, I'll be like, all right, we're going to go through the fast pack, and like, kind of like, what's your responsibility in this position, that position, that. And then I'll leave, and the next lieutenant coming in might be dealing with that same group, and I'll be like, uh, do a hands-on drill. Mm -hmm. Have them mask up, have them go down, do it. Because when you train that way, that's how you end up getting that gut instinct. Like you build it, you create it by running through it the same way. Like mm -hmm. you, you turn that into your, like you've practiced this, you've been through this. So you're kind of, you're going to learn like that. You're going to get the right feeling of how it goes. Like I used to do a lot more like, oh, let's talk out a drill, you mm -hmm. know, like talk out and like, let's go over the building, let's do this. And now it's, it really made it where I think the uh, a more realistic scenario is so important. And talking to the guys about, listen, if your heart rate goes up, you know, you're going to get the auditory exclusion, mm -hmm. you know, which I know, like, that was one of those things. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I do that all the time. So I'm very conscious of it. Like, I know that's my thing that goes, like, I don't hear things right away. I have gone over, like, when I got back from NPR, I was like, boring them to death with all that, <laughs> you know, all the stuff I wanted to talk about, you know, breathing, and visualizing, you know, just trying to you know, teach them about the curve right. and when are you going to hit these points and, you know, what are the things that are going to start to go? So I brought a lot of that yeah, back. Yeah, it sounds like you've really integrated a lot into your life. I try to. I try, like, I, I try to, um, I don't know necessarily that the guys realize that's what I'm doing. That's what a lot of leaders say from like, the department. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm not going like, all right, so today we're going to do some MPI stuff. That's just kind of what I'm trying to impart. 
But that, I think, is the ultimate goal. So that's mm-hmm. really interesting and, yeah. and cool. Hi, listeners. I want to take a moment to announce that registration to the 2020 Leadership Under Fire Leadership Development Course is opening soon. The Leadership Development Course, or LDC, for leaders in the fire service and high-risk industries, is scheduled for September 27th through October 2nd at the farm in Western Maryland. The LDC consists of five days and evenings of dynamic instruction, discussion, and collaboration focused on tactical leadership. The LUF advisory team for the event includes LUF founder Jason Bresler, Captain Gabe and Jemmy of the Camden, New Jersey Fire Department, retired FDNY Lieutenant Danny Murphy of Rescue 2, and more. The course also includes a staff ride of the Antietam Battlefield and a fitness and recovery session with Dr. Belisa Vranich and Jimmy Lopez. Early bird registration is available from February 1st through April 15th. Registration is limited to 18 leaders lodged on the farm and six lodged at nearby hotels, so act fast. For more information or to register, visit leadershipunderfire.com and click on the events tab. Now, let's get back to the episode. As an FDNY fire officer, you've contributed to the development of leaders and managers in the business sector through some of the institutions I mentioned earlier in this episode. Based on your observations, is there anything that the business sector does better than the fire service or an area where you think the fire service can make great strides? I think we are making great strides of becoming a more professional, like looking at ourselves as professionals, mm-hmm. as like really giving ourselves credit for what it is we do. I think some people might be like chest thumpers. You might have that, but I don't know necessarily that everyone really internalized like this is your profession you, you know you've got to strive to make yourself the best at what you're doing and like you know they're like oh i'm a, I'm a business executive in this and they you know they build it up so much of like who they are and rightfully so a lot of, like <laughs> Wharton folks are pretty freaking smart <laughs> i think making Guys like looking professional, looking like you are a professional, showing up in a professional manner, getting rid of like the the bullying, some Mm -hmm. of that stuff Mm -hmm. uh, that did exist. Like when I walked into the firehouse, you know, almost 19 years ago, it was – there was a lot more going on in the firehouses then and and we've moved towards being more and more professional. And I think people are taking that – like integrating that more into the department – uh, through the leadership, I think we had with Galvin, Kilduff, yeah. you know, these guys just pushed the department like in terms of training and where we were moving and how we kind of like mostly the training. Like that's the thing. I'm yeah. like, wow, that really kind of took off under Chief Galvin. And, you know, I, I like to think we're getting back on track for trying to keep that kind of thing moving. I want to segue into reading, which is a big part of your personal development. Are there any topics, books, or authors that you found to be relevant or rewarding? Well, it depends. I got, I got like my different types of reading. I got my like professional development reading stuff. Malcolm Gladwell, mm-hmm. his blank you know, it's not necessarily his work of like what he, you know, he's not presenting necessarily his work, like research of other people and stuff like that. But he puts it in a way that's just so like tangible. Mm-hmm. So he's an enjoyable uh, person to read. Gary Klein. Yep. Sources of power, power of intuition. Uh, yeah. Uh, for me, it was, yeah, The Power of Intuition and uh, Streetlights and Shadows. Mm-hmm. Those two books were, you know, they're in my they're my book. Hit. You know, they're they're not going anywhere. You know, the thing is, I'm like, there's there were so many, and I've given them away. That happens to me. I so, give them away, and they never come back. Right. People are like, oh, that changed my life, and, and I and think, then I, and then afterwards, <laughs> and people are like, what book was that? I'm like, I don't know. I had a whole bunch. I, I went to MPI. I came home and I ordered a ton of books. Right. Like I had this big stack of books. And recently, I got diagnosed with a reading uh, disability that I recently. Knew- yeah, I kind of knew I had. To. I'm a very, very slow reader. Um, like it's ridiculous, and 
I was going for uh, some testing because I was like, I was like, this is just ridiculous. And she's like, yeah, you got it really bad. There's like a thousand people who read better than you do. She's like, you're really way down there. Um, so like for me, reading is a real effort. It takes it takes me forever to get through books, but it's a great source of information that I'm not going to find elsewhere. Except I do things like uh, audiobooks too. Now I was just going to say, do you now take I, advantage? I of that? do do some of that. Uh, let's see, what's the one I'm doing? The Road to Character. I'm doing that now. Mm-hmm. I've uh, I had kind of I had been listening to it and I had kind of I was like the other day I was I was listening to a podcast <laughs> and I think uh, Jason might have mentioned it. Yes, that was one of his favorite books. At the end, and I was like. Wait a minute. I was like, I think I'm like halfway through that book. Like, That's a dense book. Yeah. You know, so I'm listening to it and it's kind of read and very monotone. So if I'm not really paying attention, all of a sudden I could be like, who the hell is he talking about? Did I miss something? And I'm like, I'll have drifted off somewhere and not been paying attention. There should be a disclaimer. Do not listen while driving. Oh, my God. Like, it's, it's like, it's. But very powerful when you are oh engaged. God. It's so good. It's so good. Um, like, and let's see, the one before that I'd listened to was uh, Malcolm Gladwell's latest book. Uh, what was that? Talking to Strangers. Talking to Strangers. And I know, slightly contrary for some people. I'm like, oh, it's great. Other people are like, nah, I didn't like it at all. I liked it. And then, like, there were books earlier, like, in my childhood. Like, the first book I ever read in my life that I enjoyed was All Things Bright and Beautiful by James Harriet. It was about a country vet who loved his job and wrote about it. Veterinarian. And he was a veterinarian. Yeah. Like a veterinarian. Yeah, a vet. Yeah, not, not, yeah a country vet. Not a, not a, not a United States Listen, vet. I, yeah, I know. Yeah, we exactly. know our audience. Exactly, we do. Um, and I got to tell you, that was one of those things that his – job was like it wasn't it was like a passion and i think like that was one of those things that like you know in my childhood was like oh maybe i could be a vet and i was like no i couldn't really deal with herd animals that would drive me nuts but like finding a passion Mm -hmm. and i think that was like one of those things that stuck with me from when i was a kid that you can you can do something that you love for the rest of your life Mm -hmm. if you find that thing and then i think one of the other books that was uh martina never to love is autobiography when I was like in high school or something, which really helped me when I was coming out. And then I have my, you know, my fun books that I'm reading, you mm-hmm. know, like uh, I love Nelson DeMille. He's one of my favorite authors. And, uh, you know, it kind of made me, I was like, I read uh, Upcountry. A lot of information about the Vietnam War that I did not know at all. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so It's amazing where books will take you. They will take you. And like, you know, there's so many books I wish I could read faster. Like that's one of the things I do wish... Like now, at least I know. I'm like, okay, it's not just me. Yeah. You know, it's not that I'm really uh, that bad. But uh, I wish I could read faster because there's so much stuff. There's so many things out there where I'm like, oh, that book looks great, and I get it, and then it just sits. It goes on the stack. You know, because there's so many great things happening in this area now. Like, just so many things out there to look at. I agree. So as we start to wrap up mm-hmm. here, I wanted to talk more about. You're part of a number of service-oriented organizations, and I want to spend a little bit of time getting a sense of how that work has shaped your philosophy as a leader. Before you joined the FDNY, you worked as a leader in an organization that served people with AIDS. How did that role and responsibility shape you and your leadership philosophy? Wow. I, I look back now, I'm like, I was so young then. Trying to make a difference and really not having the tools to do it well. I had, you know, one of these uh, supervisors who was really an amazing woman. And she'd be like, just think about where you want to be five years from now and be that now. And I was like, how do I do that? I was like, I have no idea. I don't have these – like I didn't have the skill set that I really felt I needed. So I knew that back then the thing that drove me and I felt made me capable was being committed to the mission of what it was I was doing. I dreaded three o'clock on Sunday afternoons going into work again because I had one of those piles of work that never went down. But because I was able to maintain why I was going to work, it gave me the ability to keep going. And I had, I think I was supervising like seven peer health educators who were women who were living with HIV and AIDS or impacted by it, many of whom had been incarcerated and were it was the first job they ever had and trying to teach them, you know, skills of operating in an office and 
giving them responsibilities. And uh, and I will say one of the things that I learned with that of like, you know what? These women came from, some of them came from really tough backgrounds. Some of them came from generational poverty. But when you set the bar for them, those women always jumped over it. They really did. And that was when I really kind of got the faith of, you know what? If you, you know, just set the expectation, people can can get there. As one of the founders of the Phoenix Fire Camp, you had the opportunity to mentor young women coming into the fire service. What are some of the skills and ideas that you try to instill in them to better prepare them for a career in the fire service? It goes back to that you can do anything you really set your mind to. Like if if, if it's what is your passion, you can do it. You've just got to be able to you – ju- you have to believe in yourself and be willing to commit the time and effort to that. We had girls who had never stayed away from their home, like going away to a sleepaway camp, showing up, and their mother was like, there's no way she's going to stay here the whole time, but I'm just going to give you the heads up. She may not last. I'm like, all right. And that girl lasted the whole week, and that girl was like bouncing off the walls, excited at the end of the week. We had many girls who uh, just developed this, like from when they showed up until when they were done at the end of the week, in an environment where they were exposed to putting up hose lines, putting out a car fire, doing stuff with ropes, forcible entry, operating a chainsaw on a peaked roof, like they these girls did a lot of stuff and watching their confidence level grow where they were nurtured and encouraged that they could do it you know you had some girls who would be like ah, i can't do that and you'd be like no you can't and be able to get them through it even the girls who like many of them didn't even go into the fire service but they found something there and a confidence that was really wonderful like it you know the fact that the camp still goes on now is great like we're you know we love the fact that that legacy still exists even though Anna and I have both kind of stepped back from it it's probably like one of those things I'll always look back on and be probably one of the proudest things of what I've done in terms of being able to have an impact on teenage girls something that I didn't even really know that it was something I had wanted to do fortunately I had Anna as my cohort (laughs) working on that and it, it really did it did happen so do you discuss working in a male-dominated field with them, and what advice do you give? I don't know that we ever addressed that directly. I think we addressed it just through kind of setting an example of how you... Just carry do, yourself. How you carry yourself, yeah. I think there was a lot of that. Um, we did have some girls who were like junior firefighters in places and stuff, and they had kind of been pushed aside, not able to really participate in the drills like they wanted to. And they went through with us and they kind of got to the point where they were like, hey, wait a minute. I can, you know, like, I can do this. You know, I I came here and I did it. And uh, we're able to go back. You know, we'd be like, no, you go back there and, you know, make sure you get what you get your turn. So, you know, I think it was a lot of individual kind of conversations. It wasn't like a bigger thing, like where we're like, this is how we're going to do it. So. Is it true your great-grandfather was a member of the FDNY who operated at the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire? He was. Okay. He quick, was in uh, yeah. Croker's Giants, 20-truck. Uh, quick history lesson for those who don't know. The fire occurred on March 25th, 1911 in Lower Manhattan. It remains one of the most tragic and historic fires in New York City history. The fire was a catalyst for the labor movement, workplace safety, fire protection, and the manner in which the FDNY fights fires. Are there any stories that were passed down in your family about the challenges that your great-grandfather encountered at the fire? They were, I believe they were first due truck. He only had about a year and a half on the job when it happened. He came on in 1909, but I think it was like so much the very end of the year that I think it ended up actually being 1910 when he started talking to my father about it. You know, because he, my grandfather died when, or my great grandfather died when I was three or four. Like, so I didn't, I don't really have any memories of him except like the family stories, you know, Papa Charlie and stuff. And uh, my father said it was one of those things where he said he never forgot what it was like having ladders that didn't reach high enough and watching women jump out of the window holding each other. You know, just how the whole process of how it went down. You know, it was just, my da- dad said it, you know, he never forgot it. You know, my grandfather also went to um, 1950. There was a uh, Long Island Railroad train crash. 
uh, two trains hit each other. Was it something like 68 people were killed or something? Like a really large number of people. And my father said also that was another thing where he just, he never, you know, never forgot it. Uh, my grandfather planned, coordinated some of the funerals for the 23rd Street fire because um, he was a battalion chief at the time. Wow. And it's, uh, you know, there was the family history. And I think, you know, the thing is, you know, he said, yeah, you never forgot it. But there was never really, I don't think that, you know what, we maybe we need to de- dig more than just you never forgot it. Like what are the things that it right. triggers? What are the things that it brings up? What are the ways that we address our mental health issues and how do we take care of each other so that when we have these traumatic things, you know, obviously they made it through. Right. And maybe they did those things. They weren't like the counseling unit or anything like that, but like supporting each other through those types of things. But yeah, it was a proud history to have that he was there and a tragic, tragic thing that, you know, to have to carry that, I think. Learned so much about you today. And I'm so grateful for you coming on and sharing these stories because on that note, you know, now we have this historical record with you. So I really appreciate all the things that you shared. Thank you very much. I appreciate being asked. I I don't feel, uh, I don't feel like I sit in the company of the people who podcasts I've listened to. (laughs) I appreciate being asked, and I really love your program. I think it's great. I think you've done a great job with it. Thank you very much. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.